the concept of a government shutdown is now being treated as fait accompli among the Republican class, political class. This is feeling very certain. Now, there are no certainties in this era in politics, and I will caveat that. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, August 22nd. Today, I'm joined by Abby Livingston to preview what's about to be a busy and chaotic fall on Capitol Hill, with a pileup of legislation coming into view, a possible government shutdown, and new leaders in place who are about to be tested like they never have before. And Abby and I preview Wednesday's big Republican debate in Milwaukee, which is going down without the frontrunner, Donald Trump, on stage. We'll discuss all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Welcome to The Powers That Be. We are talking politics today on the podcast. I'm joined by the one, the only, Abby Livingston. Hi, Peter. Abby, you and I talked about the state of play in Iowa for the Republican presidential race last week, and uh, we're going to riff on the Republican debate coming on Wednesday in Milwaukee. This is by far the most consequential week of the Republican campaign so far. But first, after a summer of paying attention to the presidential race, which is always sexy, Let's go back to Washington, because <laughs> that's where probably more consequential things are happening. And as the summer you know, winds down, we're approaching the fall, and there is a pileup of legislation on the horizon. There are some new and perhaps untested leaders in both chambers. Specifically, there's one leader in the Senate who... Uh, seems to be going through some health issues. That would be Republican leader Mitch McConnell, who spaced out of that press conference a few weeks ago. But the biggest thing, I guess, on the horizon is this possible government shutdown, which theoretically would come in September. And with all these new leaders in place and both parties, uh, McConnell's issues, for example, it feels like this could be an uncertain time we're heading into once the uh, recess ends. I mean, just talking to people in Washington Hill staffers, they are as checked out as I've ever seen them because they're trying to rest while they can. What's different about what's coming is, one, the concept of a government shutdown is now being treated as fait accompli among the Republican class, political class. This is feeling very certain. Now, there are no certainties in this era in politics, and I will caveat mm -hmm. that. Increasingly, the concept of impeaching Joe Biden or Secretary of DHS Mayorkas is seeming more and more in that direction. But what's crazy about what's coming is that there are other issues, and these are things that used to pass very easily that are all coming at once in a very condensed time period amid a possible shutdown where tempers sort of flare in a way they don't in other ways. And that's mm -hmm. the defense authorization. It's the farm bill, which all sound kind of boring, but these are things that are must pass that you know, the regular American pretty much takes for granted. That shouldn't be the case, though. I mean, like the farm bill, for example, like, I mean, that impacts people in California and impacts people in Iowa. Like, it's a huge piece of legislation. It's a compromise bill that basically brings together Democrats who believe in SNAP, which is the more modern term for food stamps and crop insurance subsidies for farmers who tend to be more Republican. Mm -hmm. And so um, but, you know, there's increasingly 
opposition from other corners of the GOP that view this as, you know, a good place to make cuts. What I can say is it sounds possibly kind of boring, but when this thing falls apart, the the entire Congress feels it. So the House Freedom Caucus, the you know, the hard right wing of the Republican caucus in the House put out a letter on Monday basically saying it's our way or the highway <laughs> to the rest of Congress and specifically to Kevin McCarthy, House Speaker. They are basically threatening a shutdown or at least saying they won't support a continuing resolution, which is Washington language for just a short term sort of deal to keep the government running while they hash out these details. They won't support that and avoid a shutdown unless what? Uh, Unless there's cuts in specific areas. And the Freedom Caucus is planning to vote against legislation that they don't like that deals with spending. So that includes the border. It includes the Justice Department. This is turning into they're putting culture war issues into the spending that we saw in a defense bill earlier this summer that has stalled that one out. And they do sort of have the leverage when Kevin McCarthy has such a narrow single digit majority. The Freedom Caucus, which we estimate but don't know, is about three dozen members. They're throwing their weight around. And aside to this, I've talked to some folks in the recent last week or so, and they're all saying Kevin McCarthy is stronger than he's ever been before, that post-debt ceiling, he continually overperforms expectations. Mm -hmm. This is going to test him in a way. You know, Nancy Pelosi is perceived as the greatest vote counter of her generation. I don't know if Pelosi could work her way out of this. And so it's going to put a lot of pressure on him. And it's mostly on him as opposed to the other congressional leaders known as the Four Corners because he's got the most unpredictable caucus. So he has the most unpredictable caucus. I think that is obviously the case. I agree with you. It feels like Republicans in the Senate have the most, you know, unpredictable leader right now. Not that Mitch McConnell isn't old reliable. He's a legend in his own right. What are people saying about his health these days? I don't think it's anything new than the reporting out in mid-July from when he froze up. What I would say is the central question of McConnell is he has been seen as the guy who could pull the rabbit out of the hat and cut the deal. And I think that's going to be the test for him in the fall. But additionally, Nancy Pelosi was extremely capable of using her leverage with her caucus to get her priorities. And she's not there. Mm -hmm. And so we're, you know, what is Hakeem Jeffries going to be like as a negotiator is a really big question. Now, Pelosi's around and probably advising him. But Mm -hmm. going into this, this is one of the most intense negotiations. And we've got a new set of players uh, on the field or with new responsibilities. That's what I was going to ask you, actually. I mean, like Pelosi stepped down as speaker, but she's still in office. Presumably, I would have thought to help Hakeem Jeffries sort of navigate his first couple of years as speaker. Is that is that actually the case, you think? I think she is very low key and what she's doing and she's trying to let them have the leadership spotlight. She really isn't the freshman in college going back to the party. But I think that there is very much a silent hand of Nancy Pelosi, if only by looking at their fundraising, um, not Mm -hmm. to undercut uh, Hakeem Jeffries, but she's just such a juggernaut that it just really looks like she's very much involved. So the last government shutdown, Abby, I think was 2018. Is that right? Uh, 2018 into 2019. So we'll see. We shall see if these four corners can come together and figure something out. I want to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Fox News Republican debate in Milwaukee.
Welcome back to The Powers That Be, everyone. I'm joined by Abby Livingston. We're talking politics, specifically the Republican presidential race. Do you agree with me, Abby, that I know a lot of these Republicans have been campaigning for months and months and months, that this week is probably the biggest test for all of them, even though Donald Trump won't be on that debate stage? Absolutely. When we watch these presidential contests, we're just in a holding pattern where it's the same sort of stories outside of Mm -hmm. fundraising and maybe a gaffe here and there. This is when they really start engaging. And so absolutely, I think presidential campaigns can live and die on a debate performance. So Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree with you. People think this is a relatively newish thing. Like in 2015 and 2016, Donald Trump really rose to both fame and infamy in the Republican debates and it helped him win. But I mean, I think you might have been at CNN at the time back in 2012 when Newt Gingrich like attacked John King and like that shot him up in the polls. I mean, yes, I do think after especially after my trip to Iowa last week, the on the ground retail style kind of politicking matters. But increasingly, like the tempo of the campaign is decided by what's said on the debate. I mean, this is a huge test for Ron DeSantis specifically, even without Donald Trump on the stage, because now it feels like Ron DeSantis is going to be the center of attention and not in a good way. (laughs) Like the other candidates are going to try to go after him because he's the second place candidate, both nationally and in Iowa. And all those other folks, they want to be number two because it does feel like this race is not just the race for the Republican nomination. It's the race to be the anti-Donald Trump and someone in that clown car has to get there first. And it may be the race to be VP. You know, Mm -hmm. we saw... Carly Fiorina eight years ago, make it to the upper tier of things. I think the beginning, I mean, to go back even farther, Hillary Clinton's campaign began to unwind in October 2008 when my former boss, Tim Russert, asked her about driver's license. So the Mm -hmm. stakes could not be higher. And it's not necessarily like I would caution if ratings are really low compared to the first debate in 2015, not to write it off as irrelevant because what's more important about these debates are the clips versus the actual people who sit down and watch it like you and I will. That's a thousand percent correct. The first, let's say the first Republican debate got like 24, 25 million viewers. That's the debate in Cleveland when Trump went after Megyn Kelly and it really set the tone for the rest of the campaign in terms of his behavior and how the other Republicans responded to him. But I'm just like you, like I'm thinking more recently, the Democratic debates in 2019. There's a reason all these campaigns want to go after a quote unquote moment. It's because more people are likely to see that moment in their feeds (laughs) and on social media and on on TV news wrap ups like later on than they are to watch the actual debate. I am interested what the ratings are without Trump on the stage. It's just very, very hard to compare to four years ago or eight years ago because viewing habits have changed Absolutely. so, so, so much. And and I think you're exactly right. Like the clips and the sound bites are the things that are going to matter here. And, and if you think about it in that context, so far, who is best up for like making moments? You know, I'm thinking about Vivek Ramaswamy. I mean, he's a guy who he's done the kind of like Pete Buttigieg, like go everywhere media strategy. And he's a millennial. He's the youngest Republican ever running for president. He's just very adept at social media. So he has a flair for performance. But remember, like Trump is doing an interview with Tucker Carlson the same day. I think that will come out before the debate itself. So we'll see what, what he has to say as well. You know, and I think this is already being dissected before it's even happened from every direction from the Republican worldview. But before the mm-hmm. podcast, I I spoke with a very smart Democrat and the things they're watching for, the one, the person they're most 
interested in is Chris Christie and what he does mm-hmm. and who he aims his fire toward. And we can look back to the uh, Chris Christie dicing of Marco Rubio in 2016. But also they're looking for how do Republicans talk about abortion? Is this a race to the right? And everything about the Democratic campaigns in the next two years are going to be about how Republicans talk about abortion. And they're also going to be watching for how they talk about Medicare and Social Security and seeing if they can leverage any of that to help Joe Biden compete with Donald Trump on older voters. Plus, I want to ask you, just because you cover Capitol Hill, um, despite having lived in South Carolina and loving that state, I didn't spend a lot of time with Tim Scott back in the day. He's running for president now. Uh, I was with him in Iowa, out in a town called Cambridge, Iowa, for the Story County Republican dinner last week. He feels like he's running for VP. Maybe that's too cynical of a take, but he doesn't talk about Donald Trump at all. His whole message is optimism. I am the embodiment of the American dream because of my personal story. Seems like a really nice dude generally. Like it doesn't see it doesn't seem like he wants to like throw darts at other Republicans regardless. But I took a picture of him when he was talking and I sent it to a Trump advisor and I was like, hey, it's your VP. (laughs) I mean, what's he like on Capitol Hill? I mean, he seems like a guy who's just like generally respected around the hill, even if he's not like. you know, a senior Brahmin in the party. I think he's probably one of the most popular senators there is among both parties. He's he's very well liked. And I think that's a political strength. It seems like donors like him, but Mm -hmm. he would be a counter, a compliment to Trump on a ticket. Mm -hmm. But I just I think the Trump VP selection is so far away. And I mean, one, he doesn't even have the nomination. But I also wouldn't rule out that a lot of these people are auditioning for the cabinet as well. Um, I think Mm -hmm. we just sort of have narrow focus on VP, but I I Mm -hmm. would not shock me if a lot if that's in the minds of a lot of these debaters. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. Abby, thank you so much. Everyone, if you have not signed up for the best and the brightest, please do. Abby and I have many, many, many more thoughts on Iowa, on what's going on in D.C., and you're missing out on some very important wisdom, of course, if you're not subscribed. Abby, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.